Welcome to episode seven of Exploring the Calf. I'm your host, Kyra Nankaval, and I'm joined today by Master Warrant Officer Simon Cardinal. Before we kick off, I have a few quick mentions. First of all, be sure, be sure to join the Facebook group to chat with aspiring and current CAF members and subscribe to the YouTube channel and podcast for more CAF content. And if you're studying for the CFAT, I recommend the armytest.com trainer, and all these links will be posted in the description below. Secondly, I'd like your help in finding an RMC or ROTP student to interview for the show. You can contact me directly in the Facebook group. Special shout out to Krista for connecting me with MWO Cardinal. With that out of the way, let's get on with the conversation. Today, I am excited and honored to be speaking with MWO Cardinal. He has served over 27 years, primarily in the regular force, and he started in the Army and then transferred to the Air Force where he rose to the rank of Master Warrant Officer, he served on multiple domestic and international deployments, and now in retirement, he's returned to the CAF as the Squadron Warrant Officer at 412 Transport Squadron, which is responsible for executive carries. For example, transporting the Prime Minister, which is very, very cool. He also started Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front, which we will give you more information about later on. And you will see why you need it in your life because he is an amazing communicator and has lots of gems to drop. So without further ado, Master Warrant Officer Cardinal, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be on the show and, and have an opportunity to chat with you and we'll share some stories. It'll be a lot of fun. Yes, yes, for sure. I'm super excited. I've been trying to put this together for a little while now. And um, we both have great mic quality, as we were saying, so it should be a great episode. It's clear from your experience and your history and background that you have a wealth of knowledge to share. But today, I would like to focus specifically on kind of your experience in the Air Force and the deployments or taskings that you've served. So let's throw it back all the way to 1999, <laughs> when you first joined the Canadian Army as a member of the Royal Canadian Regiment. I'm just wondering, what was your decision? What drove your decision to join the army, and why the army specifically? Well, so it's interesting. I will say, I actually started way, way back in 1994. I was in the reserves for two whole weeks, and I'll, the big reason I ended up in the infantry was I wanted to get into the military, and I didn't really care what I was going to do or how I got into that. I just knew I wanted to be in the military and do something to do the things that people often want to join the military to do, which was have the adventure, do something more important than myself, make a good salary, all of those different types of things. And so I was able to get into the infantry because back in those days, there we were, the forces were just coming out of a recruiting freeze and the, all of the floodgates had opened up as far as letting people in. And I was able to get in myself inside the wave and then make my way into the infantry. And I loved it. I'll be telling you, while I that was never originally on my radar, I mm -hmm. would love to say I loved every second of being in there, but after, that would be a, a flat out lie. But <laughs> I can say after the fact, looking back on reflection, many of the moments that I experienced in that time have helped shape me who to be the person who I am today. Amazing. And I did hear from some of the episodes you have in your own podcast that you were a bit of a troublemaker back in the day and could you just kind of share like how your experience went when you initially tried the for tried to join the forces and how you kind of had to readjust and then try again yeah of course so uh i i will say i was think i was very much like every stereotypical 16 year old male i thought i knew it all i was super macho 
I'm, I'm the man, ask me, I'll, I'll tell you. And that's, that was the attitude <laughs> I had. And the problem was that I had no reason to be so arrogant. I just had just decided mm -hmm. that. And when I, but at the same token, I always knew I wanted to be in the forces. My father was in the military. I have a mm -hmm. strong and lengthy lineage on either side of my family. And it seemed like an honorable career path to follow, but that's not enough. How, so when I went into the recruiting office, I finally made my way through the system. I've been sitting down in front of this naval lieutenant and I had been convinced because I was so amazing in my own <laughs> mind that they would welcome me with open arms and probably give me a couple of quick promotions because I just I just deserve them. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there completely oblivious to everything that's happening. And the, this, this naval lieutenant, he's looking at my file and I'm expecting him to say, welcome to the forces. And I noticed as he's talking, his brow, his, his brow got furrower and furrower and darker and darker. He starts talking and he looks at me and I hope I'm going to, if it's okay, I'll use the exact phrase he said, Mr. Cardinal, you are an immature little shit. And until you pull your head out of your ass, it'll be a cold day in hell before I let you join my military. And wow. that, yeah, yeah, that really, really, really stuck with me. It was coincidentally also the first time I'd heard pull your head out of your ass. Um <laughs> And, and, and I didn't quite, I, I didn't get it. I didn't know what he was talking about. And then, because as far as I was concerned, I was amazing, remember? Mm -hmm. And then he laid out a list and he's like, you need to do these things. You need to go back to high school. I had high school. I knew I needed high school to keep my options open, but my grades were not amazing. And I had my English teacher, Mrs. Blake, tell me on many occasions, if I would just put a little tiny bit more effort in, mm -hmm. I could accomplish everything I wanted. But that wasn't the case. I was more interested in my girlfriend and going out and having fun and you get the idea anyways so he, i was told i had to go back to school increase my grades i had to get a driver i had to get my driver's license back and not mm. have it uh, suspended again i needed to get a job and not get fired from said job and i needed to basically prove that i was worthy to be in the military and mature enough to handle this career choice and i remember that was a huge gut punch mm. for me but at the same token as I was taking the bus back home, I remember thinking to myself, well, this, this guy is right. If I, if I wanted the honor of being able to do something that I perceive to be important, I need to also be the person that can handle that and do that. So I did that. Mm -hmm. I went, went back to high school and I, I increased, I improved my grades. I got my driver's license back and I paid a whole bunch of money to do that because it's in Manitoba. And mm -hmm. Uh, I, I kept my license and I got a job and I actually, for the first time, didn't get fired because at every job I was at, I was conveniently, according to myself, the smartest, most handsome person there. And everyone else was lucky to have me in that job. So I didn't need to put the effort in because my presence was just enough. Uh, so I realized that wasn't the case. So I got a job and I kept it and all these different things. And it took from that interview it took another two and a half years roughly to get into the forces uh because they checked up on me they made a few mistakes as well but that's neither here nor there ultimately uh i was able to get in and i was able to get in in 1994 as uh as an infantry soldier with the royal canadian regiment i mean there's a lot of lessons there that i think everyone can take away um you know i have a decent sample of kind of recruits coming into the calf just because my YouTube has so many comments. So I think like a lot of people maybe need to reflect on just the the kind of person you want to be and the type of person that you're required to be to have such an honorable position and to join our military. And I think that's a good story that you have there. And obviously you've grown to great heights since. So it is possible. You just have to make sure you know you have a 
good head on your shoulders and you can achieve a lot of things in the CAF. So 1994, you joined, you're an infanteer. And then in 1998, you were deployed domestically to assist with the Quebec ice storms. And then again, to conduct rescue slash recovery after the Swiss air flight 111 crash in Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia. What were the key moments or feelings that you recall from those deployments? Well, the, the first, the, the, the key feeling that I remember when we talk about the ice storm was in a sense of excitement because this had been the first time since I had been fully qualified as an infantry soldier and we were being deployed on a real mm -hmm. mission. And I remember mm -hmm. that sense of excitement and, and nervousness too, because I had no idea what was going on. I'm a young infantry. I think I was just barely a corporal at the time. And I'm looking at all these, these people around me that had just come back from a tour in, in Bosnia. And some people had three, four, five tours by that point. And mm -hmm. And I've, I had done nothing really like uh, from a, an actual operational perspective. So this was my chance to go and do stuff. And then I, I did feel a, while we were in the operation, a, a significant sense of pride in the fact that mm. we, we do things that matter. I'm not trying to suggest mm. the forces is without its, its issues. I'm not trying to say that, but, but when we get called up, we are able to do these things in a very professional, uh, hopefully logical order. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. So um, a lot of domestic deployments have to do with civil assistance, right? So the ice storms, I think there's also flooding operations that you help out with and things like that. And what was the kind of reaction from the civilians in those areas after you guys helped them out? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. So I'll talk about the, the ice storms first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll shift about to the, uh, the, the, the crash. So in the ice storms, where we were sent to, we were sent to this little town called Lange Gardien, which is, I don't know, 75 kilometers southeast of Montreal, little mm -hmm. tiny town. Oh. And uh, it was completely covered in ice. And they, I, for those that know anything about the ice storms we're talking, there was inches, you know, or, uh, more than, I can't remember how many centimeters, but quite a bit of ice. They shut the entire the side of the country down for weeks. We were in this location for about a month before we got shifted around to another wow. place. And our whole role while we were there was to provide security, ensure people were mm -hmm. safe. And we were doing things like going door to door, checking on people and, and helping them out as best we can and seeing if they needed anything. And for the most part, people were really uh, happy to see us there to making sure that they were gonna be able to stay safe. And if there was any requirements they had that we would do what we could within reason to help them mm -hmm. out. Um, there were some people that did not want us there. And that's partially because it was a, a predominantly Anglophone unit in a Francophone mm -hmm. region. And, and they just didn't understand. Most of us didn't speak French. So it was there was mm -hmm. there were some linguistic challenges there. But once we were able to have a conversation, say, no, we're here to help regardless of anyone's backgrounds. We just want to make sure everyone is OK. Things got much easier. And that was good. And it also helped that the town that we were in had the only operating Tim Hortons within, I think, a hundred kilometer radius. The the owner had a built-in generator. So we had a lot of visitors and dignitaries come say hi to us and then conveniently went to go get Tim Hortons. But the advantage of that was there was a lot of tours that we performed. And so the residents were able to get a lot of face time with with high-ranking uh, military and civilian members of parliament. So, so it actually worked out to our benefit. And I got Tim Hortons. <laughs> that's awesome when we rolled into the um, aircraft crash the biggest thing that we we came across was 
the the shock uh, you had asked me earlier what we were feeling this was my second thing that i was doing inside one year we were in the middle of getting ready to go to bosnia and doing the prep work for that and all of a sudden i woke up in the morning i remember looking on the news saying well that that that's really close to us i wonder if something's going to happen and it happened to be that my infantry company was something called the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force. And within a few hours, we were literally running out to the ranges. A truck came out and said, everyone get on the truck. We're going to Peggy's Cove. And, and a few hours later, we were on our way. And on the way there, we were told, okay, this is a rescue operation. Uh, we're, going, we're hoping to find uh, survivors. And then we didn't make it. And we were based out of Gagetown and we didn't make it to Halifax, which is, I think, about three hours away. And they said, okay, this is very quickly becoming uh, a salvage operation. Mm -hmm. So that changed the, the entire tone of uh, any type of operation when you know what's going to be happening. But I had never been involved in this type of a thing before. So there was a lot mm -hmm. of fear and concern based off what we were going to experience because you don't, you just don't train for that. And, and so this was my first experience because uh, my role in the infantry, we were literally just walking along the beach. We had a couple of bags, one for, for aircraft parts and one for other parts. And we just did that for three or four days, just going or letting the, letting the tide come in and out and, and doing what we had to do. Uh, that was very difficult. Now, I will say in the moment, it's it's quite often we most of us anyways, outwardly showed like we were doing okay and all the different things but it's it's after the fact when you've had some time to really chew on what's what you just experienced and sit down and think about what the, the things you saw and smelled and heard and felt um but underlying all of that was again a, a very large sense of pride that i was able to do something to help others and uh you know provide some peace to family members by finding items and articles that would help them get some closure so while a difficult thing to do also very proud to say that i was a part of that operation yeah it sounds like great and necessary work that you guys were doing there um i'm sure they really appreciated like all the help that you're able to provide even if it is just some of those kind of like manual tasks that you have to get done so the following year in 1999 you deployed internationally to bosnia what was it like being a young soldier on your first international deployment were you excited, afraid? Can you kind of just walk us through some of those feelings? I was, I was very excited. I, this was it. I mean, the reason most people join the infantry was to leave the country, go do cool mm -hmm. things, experience amazing, uh, have amazing adventures. And this was it. I, I was going on a tour to the place where everyone was going on tours at that time. And, and I was getting to do the thing. And the infantry is the tip of the spear. It, it's amazing that some of the a stat I once heard is that for every, everything and everyone in the forces exists to make sure that an infantry soldier can do their job, everyone, mm -hmm. every single person. And to do that, it takes nine people on average to get that one infantry soldier in the front lines to do their thing. And here mm -hmm. I am now in 1999, my mid twenties, and I'm about to get to go be the tip of the sword to do whatever. Mm -hmm. And to help people in another place was, I would be lying to you if I said I wasn't nervous because it was still uh, a conflict zone and mm -hmm. although I will say not in 1999 things were starting to calm down uh, ish for the most part tensions were starting to ease off however in the middle of the tour the cost of a campaign started up and I remember I was in the guardhouse with my, with the private in, in the, we're doing our guard duty and the sergeant ran in and said the bombing campaign's about to start, dropped off a case of hand grenades, a bunch of ammunition, turned around, he ran back into the office. I'm, 
what what is happening here? What's going on? So that was that was a little nerve wracking. Uh, and then we our posture, the Canadian forces posture changed. We got sent up to a different place to do some different mm -hmm. stuff. But again, you know, when you're that young, and mm -hmm. in my case, moderately immature, you don't really understand the the dangers that are going on there. And it was just a cool adventure to be driving these bison air armored personnel carriers up to go to do whatever we were going to do and these cool adventures and stuff. Uh, it was amazing. It, I remember in the middle of that, when we got shifted to uh, bolster one of our regions, we were in this farmhouse that was in the middle of this giant open area. And and there was no animals, there was no trees, nothing. It was just this big, giant, open farmland. And we were told, okay, do not go anywhere anywhere off the, the, the paths because it's been filled full of mines, which is, of course, terrible. Wow. But was what, what I found was even more interesting. So we were doing that. We're watching the leopard tanks with their flails go and blow up mines and anti-personnel and anti-tank mines were going off. That was kind of interesting to watch. <laughs> but then I found out the story of this particular region was in World War II, when the German paratroopers had come in, they had landed in this exact field and the Serbians were ready wow. to go. And they'd, so there was this big giant battle that happened. It was very significant in the course of World War II. And here I am sitting in the middle of this one building that survived this. And this is our platoon house. Those types of experiences in the middle of all of this carnage that I'm seeing and experiencing, I remember that. And it's a positive moment. So there's always those positives, I think, I feel in the, in the tough times as well. And what was Canada's kind of like mission on that deployment or what was the nature of it? And did that change your perspective at all? So Canada's like role in that. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Canada's role in this was we were part of the NATO force and we were part of S4, which was a stabilization force. We were peacemaking, not peacekeeping. And there is a significant difference. Peacekeeping is implying that all of the factions are working with each other as best they can to maintain their own peace. Uh, we were peacemaking in that we were forcing everyone to stay apart so that the upper echelons of government could sit down and hammer out ways that they could actually learn to live and work with each other. So we were mm -hmm. forcing people to stay apart, which was challenging for sure. Sometimes some people wanted us there. Most people just kind of wanted to live their day and live their lives like anyone else. They didn't really need armed Canadians walking around and making mm -hmm. sure that things were going on. Right. And shortly after returning, you transferred into the Royal Canadian Air Force as an aircraft structures technician. What was the motivation behind this move, especially if you had um, such an interesting experience on your deployment? Yeah, well, so I will start by mm -hmm. saying my, my father was in the Air Force. My grandfather mm -hmm. was a, an aircraft technician in World War II. And mm -hmm. so I always think I wanted to be in the Air Force. The mm -hmm. infantry was my way into the military. And there's a program that allows you to there's a few different programs that allow you to change trades once you're in and fully qualified. Uh, I chose aircraft structures technician because I love the idea of painting. I love the idea of welding. And there are many other things that happen in that. And I will say the aircraft structures technician trade is the coolest of all the trades. But the, you know, I'm a little bit biased to be fair, but, but it is amazing. And so why I chose to do it at that time was I was 24 years old. I, at that time, I had broken both my ankles a couple of times. My back was starting to get sore. My knees were starting to pop. Mm -hmm. And and I was looking, I was, I was about to start a family. And I was looking around thinking, okay, well, what, what can I do with this? And I knew there were, were options, but I wanted to expand my options. And so this, I took advantage of one of the programs. I applied a couple of times and eventually I was accepted. So, and, and the way we went. So you said that being an aircraft structures technician is the best trade. So what do people in those roles actually do? 
Yeah. So, so there are, I think five air maintenance trades. And so the air aircraft structures technicians were the trade that actually, okay, I'll backpedal just a little tiny bit. In 1999, mm -hmm. there were nine trades. And what, that, what ended up happening was because of budget cuts, the government went to the air force and said, Hey, you need to figure out how to bust your trades down. So the RCIF's fix to that was to amalgamate these nine trades into three trades. And so it became aviation technicians, avionics technicians, and aircraft structures technicians. So my trade was you had used had been air machinist, air, air metal technician, and an air refinisher. So mm -hmm. uh, so basically, well, machining is just like the name implies. The metal technicians were they they did structural types of things, metal fabrication, uh, all that type type of stuff. And the refinishers were working on the painting and the carbon mm -hmm. fiber decals, those different types of things. I came into the program. Uh, into the trade rather when the pro after the amalgamation and I was fortunate enough to go to a civilian SAGEP in Saint Hubert mm -hmm. to go and do my trades training because the the, the the school wasn't quite yet set up to start training mm -hmm. these courses so the other trades so avionics technicians they're the software and they do all the different hardware changes for things like radars and mm -hmm. flight control systems that type of stuff and the aviation technicians mm -hmm. they're the hardware so they will do things like engines and uh changing the flight controls and actual hardware stuff the acs trained trade has since uh evolved to take on the safety system side of the house air mm -hmm. weapons which used to be rolled into the avian trade has now become its own trade again and the non-destructive technician trade has always been its own entity and it remained that way so yeah there's been a lot of changes wow but the acs wow. trade is is kind of seen as the uh it, its own little trade some would say mafia uh, because it was for the longest time, it was the smallest trade, but also it was the trade that offered a lot more opportunities for folks to do things outside the military because painting is painting, uh, welding is welding, but fixing a radar on the F-18 is very specific to the <laughs> F-18. It's kind of hard to roll that into something else. So anyways. <laughs> right. But that was really interesting to be honest. I didn't know most of those things existed. And I think um, that's why we're excited to have you on, learn more about the Air Force. So Thanks for going to some details into those different roles. And if anyone's interested in the Air Force, now you know about different maintenance roles that you can check out on forces.ca website. So moving on to 2005 and 2006, where you served two deployments in Afghanistan with a transport hub. Can you tell us a bit about the CAF objective in Afghanistan and your role and how long you were there for? Yeah, for sure. So I was at the time I was posted to Greenwood, Nova Scotia and Trenton, Eight Wing Trenton had been tasked to create a, uh, a a transport hub in uh in a region that we we're not allowed to talk about but we'll just say it's dubai because everyone knows where it is and so we got sent into that and as a, an aircraft structures technician i was sent to augment one of the trenton groups to get sent inside and we called it the tau the tactical airlift unit the the whole the overarching role of why we were in afghanistan is probably far too long to get into here but my yeah. role for this was to be able to ensure the aircrafts met their structural airworthiness program. And so there at that any time we had a number of aircraft at that point. And the whole point of Camp Mirage was to act as a go-between to get aircraft in, into and out of the country and act as a bit of a, a, a liaison hub. So we would have people come out and do their 96ers or that, those types of things as a rest and mm -hmm. relaxation point but also to ensure that there was a, a, a short, 
easy, quick stop for people to get in to do whatever. So we would send in the Hercs, the Airbuses, different types of things and, and go from there. My main role in that was to make sure, as I mentioned earlier, that the aircraft were structurally sound to perform these missions. How do you test aircraft for structural soundness? One of the great things about the, the RCIF's airworthiness program is it is very, very robust. So there's a very significant maintenance program that gets in, it gets, comes into play into consideration. Uh, I won't get into all the, the minutiae of it, but when aircraft are selected to get deployed overseas for these types of things, it's generally in between a maintenance cycle when there are specific structural tests that get done. And then by the time the aircraft is actually on the ground, when I would be doing any type of work, it tends to be a little minor in its nature and something that I can repair quickly. If it becomes a significant mm -hmm. issue, that's a whole other thing that we could get into. Uh, but from a structural component perspective, generally what we're looking at are things that are safe to do. And we have manuals and re you rely on your experience to know what's safe and what isn't. And do you have, um, do you work in like a buddy system or something, or are you responsible for kind of being at that level where you can look at and review different things that you're working on and then approve them? Oh yeah. So at that point, generally in the air force, we're not sending people over on these types of tours unless they've met their uh, operational requirements. Uh, mm -hmm. The, we call it the OFP point. And then in the Air Force specifically, there's different levels of signatures. And so we're requiring people mm -hmm. to have a minimum of their level A signature, which is the paperwork that allows us to sign for our own work to make sure we're safe. Mm -hmm. That having been said, if something is a little more complicated or, or challenging, we, we do have where well, there was another aircraft technician, aircraft structures technician on the other crew and him and I, we happen to know each other. We would bounce ideas back and forth off of each other to figure out the best way to go forward. And then we also have there in, back in Canada, in Ottawa, where I'm located, uh, we have what's called the WISM cells, so the Weapons Systems Maintenance Cell, and they are the engineers that are overviewing and overseeing the entire maintenance program. Wow. And so we could go to them and say, hey, listen, this is what we've experienced. What do you recommend? What's the repair? And then they would go in, do their engineer stuff, and then send us a repair scheme or tell us to send the airplane back and, and they'll, they'll bring a replacement to us. That very That's rarely really happens, yeah. That's really interesting. <laughs> it, it's um, a lot. I'm trying to, I'm trying to hit the main points. <laughs> you're doing a great job. I think that gives us a good like overview of how it kind of works. And I'm sure there's a lot of different maintenance tasks that can be done on these airplanes, the very complicated systems, I'm sure. Um, so you gave us a really good overview with those, with that, with what you said. And comparing this deployment to the last one in Bosnia, were there any like different feelings that you experienced when you, this one was coming up? Yeah, this was a, this one was, so my air force deployment was different and for a couple of different reasons. When I went on the first one, I had never been on a, a deployment before, so I didn't know what to expect, but on that deployment, I was in the infantry and I was being deployed, excuse me, with my infantry platoon to a platoon house in the middle of a little town called B hatch. And we were going into peace make and and, and I was there doing frontline work. And then in mm -hmm. this role in the Air Force, I was leaving to go to a position and a, a specific location that is was not as austere as others. And I, right. I know people that are listening to this, if they know anything about Camp Mirage, are going to be rolling their eyes when I say austere, because it was designed in such a way to allow people coming out of theater to have a place to relax and, mm -hmm. and take a take a breath. And I was very, very fortunate. And I recognized how fortunate I was to be able to be stationed at this position 
in this location mm-hmm. permanently. So uh, as far as the safety aspect of things go, I was, I was in a position that was much safer. I didn't have to worry about that. Um, but the differences were that in the infantry, my day could kind of vary in the, in the timeline. <laughs> Generally, it was an eight-hour day for the most part. Uh, but with the Air Force in this tactical unit, the shift was 12 hours. And if I was required wow. to stay longer, then I stayed longer. And more often than not, it was it was very common to have to do an, a longer shift because these airplanes needed to get in. They absolutely had to mm-hmm. get there. And I remember one time we loaded up a Hercules aircraft full of toilet paper because they were out of toilet paper. So we had to get this airplane in. And while that sounds like mm-hmm. a, a pretty simple thing to do, imagine you're in, you're in the middle of nowhere and you, you now you don't know how you're going to clean up after yourself. That's that's terrible so we needed to Mm. do those things and toilet paper was a simple uh, option but we did things like bring mail to people Mm. uh ammunition we brought people in and out every single day twice a day every day and those flights were a no fail or a no fail mission setup so that that was different there was a different kind of pressure put on us to be able Mm. to do that but at the same token and also, I, I guess now is a good point to, to bring up. I, I also had a young daughter, I had a young family. And mm-hmm. so this was the first time I was deploying and I was leaving uh, my own family behind. And that's a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. I was gone over the holidays. So that was, that was my first time doing that. See, a lot of different pros and cons. Um, but at the same token, there's nothing like the feeling of watching the, an airplane come in and or depart and taking people out of theater or mm-hmm. sending in uh, an air, you know, knowing I had my part to do with getting an aircraft sent in full of ammunition, knowing that, that we're, we're going to be able to do that to help my mm-hmm. fellow soldiers in whatever way that I do. Because if you remember way back in the beginning of this, I talked about how in the infantry, they are the tip of the sword and everyone exists mm-hmm. to make sure they can do their job to put those boots on the ground. And that was my way to be able to help them to do that. So I, I, I was very aware of that. I hope that wasn't too long. Wow. No, that was that was a great um, reflection on that time period. I think myself and other listeners will definitely be able to kind of get a sense of what it was like in a small way, obviously, because we weren't there. But um, yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of like new feelings with you not being there for the holidays and like dealing with that and also being in more of like a support role instead of being front lines. But we definitely thank you for your service in the time that you were deployed. And I guess my next question is, what were the most impactful lessons or takeaways from Afghanistan? From the Afghanistan campaign was understanding that we are doing something important. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm not necessarily talking about Afghanistan. I'm talking about the Canadian Armed Forces in general is that we have an important mandate, which is to protect others and to help others. And without getting into all the political (laughs) sidestepping about why we were in Afghanistan, ultimately, we did that. We helped other people live better lives was it forever some people yes some people no but we did something important and i'm very happy that i was able to be a part of that in my way right yeah we'll definitely leave the political sides out of this conversation but yes, um I think probably that a good idea next, <laughs> yes yes i think that's a good token to move on to the next question here which is is there anything that you would like to say to those who are currently deployed or those who have recently returned based on what you know now and haven't been through some of that? I think I'd like to talk to maybe, so talk to about the idea of when people get back. When I was, back when I did this Swiss air crash, I remember afterwards, like there was no, this was 1998, there was very little talk about 
mental health and all of those mm-hmm. different types of avenues out there. And I remember we were sitting down after we had done our, our thing there. I don't know how to word it properly. And in the platoon, there tends to be 30 people. So we sat in this big giant circle and in the middle was one social worker. And she's like, okay, let's talk about everyone's feelings about what we just experienced. Of course, no one said anything because this is mid 1998. No one's going to say anything, but mm-hmm. uh, it was very, very unlikely. Of course, we all just kind of shifted uncomfortably and waited until it was over. But now I really believe that while things aren't perfect, there is a much more openness an authentic openness to be to allow people to speak about what they're thinking and feeling. So if you're in there and you're having these emotions, my recommendation would be to get them out there in whatever way that you feel is healthy for you. Uh, it, it, everyone is different. and But take that time because while bearing things down in the beginning might feel really good and seem like it's pushing things away, it's not. Everything comes back. It will burn a bubble its way back to the top and it will very likely be at the most inconvenient time that, that could happen. So... The, the, the systems are there. There's some of them aren't perfect. I recognize that. I'm not trying to suggest the calf is perfect in any sense of it's uh, in any way, but I am suggesting that in my opinion, things are trying to get better and it's going to take time. Right. Yes, for sure. And to find these resources, um, would that be more of like an internal search or something that you can look online for? Uh, do you have any advice on that? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways. So uh, if you're not, if someone's not sure, depending on where they're located, uh, more the first thing you could do is you could talk to some friends, people that you're comfortable with, and they could help you find those things a little bit quicker. It, ultimately, if you're really not sure where to go, I would recommend going to the MIR, the the the, the military hospital, talking mm-hmm. to someone there, and they will point you in the right direction. That's definitely mm-hmm. their their avenue and their specialty, and they'll get you going. It's not perfect. I recognize that. I'm not trying to say it is, but there are options available. Okay, great. I think that's a good place to transition now that we know where some of those resources exist. Um, And you mentioned offline that you've participated in many unit level exercises in British Columbia, Idaho, Las Vegas, Kansas, and Iceland. Pretty interesting. Were each of these exercises different in nature? Uh, So yes and no. So those were all, all of those options or also all of those exercises were when I was with 409 squadron in cold Lake, Alberta. And I got to say, while I was not initially happy, I was posted to cold Lake. That was the, probably the best four years I had in, in the forces, as far yeah. as experiencing different things and having a lot of fun. Uh, the jets are while old, they are an amazing airframe and they're a lot of fun to work on. And the exercises were amazing. Now, some of those exercises were, just exercises to train the pilots and then the planes got to go there. So techs have to go and fix the planes. Right. Uh, uh, but things like British Columbia and, and Iceland, we were doing like air policing in Iceland because the, because Iceland oh. does not have their own air force. So it's part of the NATO agreement that Canada or sorry, NATO countries will protect that domestic airspace. And we need to do that because of their close, close uh, proximity mm-hmm. to foreign entities is probably the best way to put that um and so we were part of that and we went there for a month and got to watch the planes fly around Mm -hmm. a bit and do their different things and other exercises like i mentioned earlier were just to get the the pilots qualified and also to get the experience to the technicians in other regions understanding Mm -hmm. how things get done it was it was a lot of fun what is the relationship like between pilots and technicians or kind of the more support roles well, it, it, it varies. I think at the end of the day, it's an important thing to remember that people are people and, and no matter what your position is or what your trade is, everyone poops. That's the, my biggest <laughs> thing I love to remind people. Uh, at the end of the day, that's just the way it is. Uh, 
pilots are by their very nature very confident and they they need to be i get that some pilots are arrogant i've met technicians that are arrogant but the 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 relationship between them is very symbiotic most people recognize that the planes can't fly without the pilots but Mm -hmm. the pilots can't fly the planes without the technicians flying them and Mm -hmm. and the the big example i like to give people about that is a technician or sorry a pilot does doesn't wake up in the morning and say you know what I think today I'm going to go take the jet out. That's not how yeah. it works. There is approximately eight hours of prep work for that pilot just to get ready to go to the crew desk and, and get ready to fly that aircraft. And the technicians, what they need to do to get that. And in the F-18, unless they do an air to air refueling, that airplane is on the ground in an hour and a half. That's because that's all the gas that has in it. There's some fuel management things in there, but for the most part, we'll say 90 minutes. And the thing about that is for that pilot to get up and fly for an hour and a half, they have eight, roughly eight hours of prep work involved in that. And the technicians have a little bit less, but at the same token, we're also required to provide a spare aircraft in case the initial aircraft is broken for whatever reason and unserviceable at the time of flight. But at the same token, our role, and it's specifically worded this way in the manuals, is to provide that pilot with a safe aircraft to the best of our knowledge so we have a crew chief who physically signs the aircraft and hands it over to the pilot on, on a, of course in a logbook says here sir okay. i am giving you or ma'am i am giving you a safe aircraft and then the pilot acknowledges that they take receipt of that aircraft and then off they go to do their their pilot flying stuff so there's that symbiotic relationship and understanding that neither of us can do what we do without the other and if people remember that that is very helpful and makes a really great working environment that that is a very cool dynamic i didn't realize like all the nuances of that to be honest and i think based on you know hollywood films and stuff most people just think of pilots when they think of kind of like the air force in general to be honest but it is cool to kind of see behind the behind the scenes of all the other people involved in the chain to kind of get the airplane ready to go and be flown so that's that's really interesting and i think you know, support roles are also obviously very important and it's cool to kind of hear some of the nuances that go into that. And it does seem like a very cool job, like you have a lot of responsibility. So thank you for sharing that. And one other thing I want to just ask when you're training in these different places or countries is what it was like to work with different militaries in the, in the different places that you went. Oh, it, it was a lot of fun. When I was in Bosnia, we had the opportunity, actually, before I went to Bosnia, we had the opportunity in the infantry to go to the States and do what are called uh, MARCOT exercises, so maritime international exercises. And we went in my company, we went and got embedded with the US Marines, put on one of their small US aircraft carriers, not an aircraft oh. carrier, but they have their Harriers and their helicopters. And there was this multinational <laughs> exercise and we bounced around in the sea for a little bit. And then we went and simulated uh, taking Newfoundland. And we did that with, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And we did that with the U.S. Marines. Most of these guys and girls had never been in a position where they'd even seen Newfoundland. And here we are, we're, you know, 60 of us in the back of a sea stallion getting dropped off in the bottom of a valley. And we've been telling them stories about how there's going to be 10 feet of snow, but it was July. And so they're dying in their their Gore-Tex gear and we're laughing and we're sharing our (laughs) things and having these great times and, you know, going through these mock assaults with the Americans and getting those experiences and seeing the similarities and the differences was a lot of fun. There was a lot of talk about ration packs uh, and, and how ours are far superior to theirs. Um, but then when I went to Bosnia, I did I did a couple of exercises where we went and did stuff with the, the British military. 
and we did an exchange with the Czech military. And that was a very big eye opener for me to remind me how fortunate we are as Canadians to have just stuff. Uh, Would it be okay if I shared the quick story on that? Okay, so uh, so we were we were what the idea was, we were going to do an exchange with the Czechs. And at the time, they had just joined NATO and just joined the mission. And so we were we we're just going to do that. Our platoon was going to go to their area of operation and do the patrolling, and theirs was going to go to ours. So it happened to be that my my platoon had been in the Canadian AOR embedded in in uh, an area called Velika Kladusa, and it was our main rear echelon support hub. We had an area there, but we also did patrolling duties. So it was a very large kitchen because it was a very large establishment. And where we went to for the checks, it was their version of a, of a platoon house, so 30 people. And that's fine. That was no big deal. So we went, we showed up, and we, we in, in part of the exchange, we were, the, the host country was supposed to provide the lodging, the meals, all the different things. And so we sit there, we arrive, and uh, the officer and the warrant officer, they, they go in to meet their version of that, and they're shaking hands. They come out. And they're they're losing their mind. They're like, what is happening here? Like the officer's like, you're a very young lieutenant. And what, you know, he's upset. He's freaking out. They're supposed to give us food. They've got this meal laid on. There's nothing there. Blah, 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 blah. He's losing his mind. So now we're all getting up in arms because, you know, our leader is getting up in arms. And then a few minutes later, we actually go inside this thing. You can tell it was a pretty nice spread. Uh, and then I was talking to one of the my counterparts. And the guy's like, I don't know why everyone is upset. We we have potatoes and we have some meat out. And I haven't seen a potato in about two months uh, because their rations are very, very sparse. And they and he's like, and I haven't seen meat since I arrived. And so they wow. had actually, the Czechs had rolled out what their version of the red carpet would be for us to try and impress us. And we were like, without even thinking, putting our nose up at it. That was pretty embarrassing and very humbling moment. And when I think of when I try to remind myself of how lucky we are to be Canadians in a country that I recognize is not perfect, but we have a lot of opportunities that are just given to us and we have no idea how fortunate we are. And I think of that quite often. Mm-hmm. On the other flip side of that, the checks that had been sent to our AOR, they were blown away because our Canadian, the Canadian military is renowned throughout the world for having the best uh, mess facilities around mm-hmm. our food stores and what we provide to our people is second to none and and so these guys and and were and it would happen to be all guys in the platoon these guys were blown away by just being able to go to a fridge and opening up the fridge and taking a carton of milk and taking it back to your room they, they couldn't wrap their mind around that wow. and having two different meat entrees to choose from and having a whole pizza bar off to the side and these different things keeping in mind it was 1999 so things were settling down and this was a rear echelon camp um so so that was a big part of that and actually i'll, I'll if I could backpedal just a little bit, I've said VK was a rear echelon camp. That's not accurate. It was uh, very much inside the AOR. It was just our hub. And because of that, it was placed in a spot that was a little more secure than maybe some of the other places Canadians were put into. In no way it was a rear echelon. Um, but yeah, so so they came back. So when it came time to do the exchange again, uh, we met each other and these guys had uh, the Canadian uh, cooking staff had uh, given these guys crates and crates and crates of uh, milk, fruit, mm. uh, a bunch of uh, frozen meats and stuff like that. They were very thankful. And I got to go do some cool things. And I still have, I still keep in contact with one or two of the the, the Czech, wow. Czech folks. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Long-winded. Wow. I apologize for that long-winded story. No. no, it's really cool. Like 
keep in mind that people who weren't there weren't there right so it's cool to hear all the little details and things to kind of paint the picture in our minds and yeah that is something that you know you can you can never take for granted like your current situation even if there are other things that are better or worse like it's always good to keep that kind of in the back of your mind so very cool that you had that exchange um i was also wondering if you guys ever trade like patches and stuff with other militaries so we did we like we at when I was going through there, we still had all of drab combats and stuff like uh-huh. that. So uh, we, uh, we did have some Canada patches that we would give them some Canada flags and those different types of things uh, at the headquarters level. It's my understanding. There was some sharing of Royal Canadian, like I was in the RCR as the Royal Canadian regiment. So there was some sharing of different uh, paraphernalia that, that, that traditionally happens at the beginning and end of a rotation. So right. I don't know exactly what it was. I was a corporal. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, awesome. And okay, so you went on some different deployments, some different training exercises. And then in 2011, you're promoted to sergeant and posted to St. Jean to teach BMQ. From your Trent Leadership Podcast, I know that you're excited about this opportunity. And the idea that you kind of influence some of these younger minds and pass on what you've learned. And I was just wondering, like, why you in your own words were excited to become an instructor and excited for this opportunity. Yeah, well, so I appreciate the question. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I was excited to go teach basic training. I had always asked for that. And the reason I wanted to go do that was because my experience on BMQ was very, very good. I had an amazing master corporal who took the time to actually teach us and show us different ways to do stuff. And there was a specific example that are a situation that I had that reminded me. And I remember thinking when I was on basic training, wow, someday I hope I have the opportunity to be able to do this thing going forward. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I I had a good time. And do you feel like you're able to have an impact in that way in your role? I, I did. Uh, as, as a sergeant, it was the best rank to be there because you're embedded, you're a section commander, you're embedded right in with your section, you get mm-hmm. to do your thing, you're, you take your 15 people and you can kind of go off and, and tell war stories if that's a part of it. And you can help people and teach people how to do what it means to be a soldier because the whole point mm-hmm. of basic training is not to be a the, the, come out of there and be a gung-ho Canadian Forces soldier. It's about knowing what it means to be a Canadian Forces uh, person, a person in the Canadian Armed Forces. And at the same token, for, for NCMs, it's about knowing how to operate in a small group of two to three people. And for officers, it's about how to lead a small group of two to three people. So for NCMs, do what you're told. And some people, it's very hard to adjust to that mm-hmm. mindset. And, mm-hmm. and for BMOQ, for some people, it's it's very difficult to adjust to always being in charge. And mm-hmm. and there's there's something to be said for that. And that's the whole point of BMOQ. So I do feel I was able to make a, an influence and a positive difference. I made mistakes like everyone does uh, there. I was there for three years and, and sometimes it was more challenging. And I certainly wasn't perfect. But I, I, I like to believe that I was able to make a positive difference. And I, and I hope that I was a role model in a good way for most people that I was there. I'm sure that you were for sure from the kind of content that you put out and who you are as a human being. It seems like you do have a lot of great wisdom to pass on and that you have a, you know, a way to teach people in, in a way that's impactful. So I was also wondering, I remember there was this series about basic training called like basic up or something oh, yeah. like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Were you ever like involved or knew anyone in that? So that happened after I left, like apparently the year after I left, they started that up. I do know a couple of mm-hmm. the instructors that were in the video program and yeah. it was, 
I mean, it was pretty accurate in what they were doing and how they were doing things like the the room inspections and that type of stuff. Some of the other things I, I don't necessarily agree with, but uh, for the most part, I think if people are interested in a career in the forces, that basic up is is a good starter to get a general idea of what basic training is going to be like. That having been said, that was a few years ago, and I know BMQ has significantly changed. So some of the physical content of being in BMOQ and BMQ uh, will be different. But that's a good thing too. It should evolve. Right, right. Makes sense. And yeah, for sure. You definitely want your train to evolve with the times. Um, Are there any like stories from being an instructor that you'd like to share? Like maybe somewhere you felt proud or maybe something that gave you a laugh? Yeah. uh, So one of the, the, the proudest moments I had and it sounds it sounds cheesy and tacky, but is of course every time I was able to be in a platoon and watch them watch them just get something new. When mm-hmm. when I was teaching, when I would be teaching a drill lesson and a student was having a hard time figuring out how to do something, and I could sit down with them and say, Okay, well, this is what the issue is, this is what we think it is, let's figure mm-hmm. this out, and then watch them succeed through that. Or mm-hmm. maybe they were struggling with their physical fitness in the beginning of BMQ. And then all of a sudden, you know, we get near the end and they can do it specifically mm-hmm. things like the forced, the 13 kilometer forced March people mm-hmm. have that. It's a big number for a lot of people for the first time and help them get through that, that, that there's just something about that ability to be able to do that. Uh, for me, there's always those, those little, those moments that the, the candidates don't even realize are big moments and they're going to look back on and see that probably, uh, I don't know, there's, there are many funny stories, but I think one of the one of the good ones for me would be we were at the end of the exercise. Uh, so we were doing the field phase and we're out there, we're doing our different stuff. And we were simulating a platoon level assault. And mm-hmm. my section had been tasked with doing the main assault. So we're sitting there and we're, 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 we're doing our pepper potting. And it was just a mess because none of the candidates know what they're doing, but it's fun to watch. <laughs> and we're, we're fighting through the objectives. We're we're taking everyone out. We're doing our thing. And just as we were getting to getting ready to enter into the wood line, this is the middle of the night. Um, this a uh, couple of helicopters from St. Hubert Squadron, so 438 and St. Hubert, they had been in their area doing some training. They must have seen us with their night vision goggles. So they flew over top of the super low altitude and they're like, wow. And then they hovered over us and you could see kind of, and then they just did their thing and then they kind of flew uh-huh. away and, and then they did their stuff. And we, we, fin- we fought, we stopped or did our thing, fought through the objective, did our consolidation. And afterwards the students came up to me like Sergeant Cardinal, I, I, that, that's amazing. Like, yeah, that was pretty cool. And like, I can't believe you folks organized all that. Thank you so much for all that. That's incredible. I can't believe you do this. Like, yeah, sure. Okay. I'll, I'll take credit for that. Why not? Right. And, and then telling them afterwards, like I had nothing to do with that was just good timing and, and those types of things. And, you know, you just, you're able to giggle and, 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 and go from there. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot, I had a lot of fond memories of watching mm-hmm. people get through their own fears and succeed and be amazed about what they can do it was it was impressive i had a good time tough it was challenging but it was tough but fun and looking at that bm or those bmq courses that you kind of supervised as an instructor compared to when you went through bmq were there any like significant changes from those two time periods oh it's completely different so we're talking about <laughs> close to seven we're about 17 years and when i went through you know every second word was an f-bomb and it was not uncommon to see your 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 area get destroyed so coincidentally when i went through basic training 
how long ago was it? It was so long ago that the video that I got when I was at the recruiting center was still Cornwallis because that's where the English candidates went through. But by the time I got through, Saint Jean, Cornwallis had been closed and St. Jean was the new thing. And I was the second English course to get rolled through. So there was a uh -huh. lot of people that were not happy. There were Anglophones there, the lot, and just for a bunch of different reasons. So we wore that a little bit. And, and then it was basic training in the mid nineties. So there was definitely a lot more human rights were taken into consideration, but like everyone swore at you, you know, if you screwed up, you just did a bunch of pushups. The instructors stood mm -hmm. over top of you and just told you, you sucked. There was a bunch of different things that happened. Uh, it was a different way to motivate. And, mm -hmm. uh, and when I, by the time I arrived, we were officially not supposed to be swearing at people. That's a difficult thing to tell a, an infantry sergeant to stop doing. Um, and, and then, so if we were to issue any type of punitive <laughs> damages or whatnot, or push-ups or sit-ups or that type of thing, the invisible chair, we had to do that with them to prove mm -hmm. that, you know, you know, we're not just going to make you do it. If you have to do it, then I'll do it with you. And that actually worked out really well because it forced the instructors to not just toss this, these, these, uh, these, these things out there. It made everyone actually think about it a bit more. And the, what the training was, has significantly evolved. When I went through, it was rifle training, NBC, first aid drill, little tiny bit of stuff about generic calf things and get gone. Now there's a lot more of a focus on understanding people and, and society and the forces in general. And that's, that's been a big change. It's been helpful. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, it's kind of cool because you've seen like the evolution almost because you have been involved for quite a while. Yeah, I've been um, a while. <laughs> so as I understand the time after instructing BMQ in like 2021, when you retired, uh, was filled with some tactical and strategic administrative positions. Can you tell us a bit about what you did in these roles? Yeah. So after, after basic nurse, after I was an instructor of basic training, I got promoted to the rank of warrant officer and I was posted to Ottawa. Uh, I did the year long French course. And then afterwards I was sent to a place called ADM Matt, which is a assistant deputy of materiel. I forget. And assistant deputy minister for materiel for the Canadian forces. So it's a very large background organization. Mm -hmm. And I was the deputy technical authority for the CF 18 structures program. And so if you remember, Mm -hmm. Earlier, I was talking about the WISM cell, the weapon systems management cell. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was in the F-18 cell for that. And if there had been a, a, a question about a structural problem while the jets were away anywhere, either in Canada or on a deployment, that piece of paperwork I told you about that we would send to the engineering team, it ended up on my desk. I would do my work and then I would send it to the engineer because I'm not an engineer and the engineer would do their stuff. So while it was a big shift because I was now watching programs happen and projects start and take forever. Uh, but it was really good for opening my eyes to understand uh, the Canadian Armed Forces from a strategic and institutional level. It was good. It was tough. I, I did. I wasn't super happy in the beginning, uh, but I got afterwards. I was able to really appreciate the experiences I gained from it. Right. I guess that is kind of cool to see the other side of something that you've kind of been involved with. Yeah. And reflecting on the beginning of your career or the early days. Did you expect yourself to accomplish all that you have? And are there any, you know, kind of opportunities or decisions that you may, you may have chose differently if you were to do them again now? Uh, well, you know, I would say, so after I did that DTA job for a while, I did become a career manager for a few years. And that's where I ended up retiring from that, that position. 
And I would say I, when I got in, I was just so happy to be able to get in because it took two and a half years to, to basically grow up and prove to myself and, and the forces that I, I, was, I deserve to be there. Yeah. Uh, do I have any regrets? I think most people have regrets in general that would yeah. do things differently if you look back at stuff. But at the same token, mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed what I did. Uh, I enjoyed the career that I had. I just, it was time for me to, I, was, I realized it was ready for a good time for me to go and consider mm-hmm. other things. Right. Did I answer your question there? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like you said, like in 2021, you retired as a master warrant officer. Um, and how long was it before you actually returned to the CAF as an advisor to the commanding officer at 412 Transport Squadron? Yeah, so I was out for almost two years. I When I retired, I wasn't because I was upset with the military or angry. I wanted to leave on my own terms. It was just time for me to look at doing something else. I had started a master's degree. I don't have an undergrad. I was able to get in. Uh, this master's degree allows people in based off their personal and professional life experiences. And this master's degree what was had a lot of opportunities for me and it helped me under remind myself that there are other things out there. And it became clear it was, time for me to do something else. And so I, I retired uh, fully from the forces. I started a job with a company called Callion as a contract manager. I still work for them. And, and then a, a friend of mine reached out and said, Hey, Simon, this, this reserve job might be coming up in Ottawa and it'll be available in a year and we'll see what happens. So I put it away and I thought about it and then it came up and I applied for it and, and I got accepted. So what I am is I am the master warrant officer. I am a master warrant officer. I'm the squadron warrant officer at 412 squadron here in Ottawa. And I was, a, I love, I love it. I'm a class A reservist. I'm on a class B surge right now, which is great. And it allows me to be in the forces, uh, have that sense of familiarity that I carried for many, many years, my entire adult life. And still allows me to follow the other passions that I wanted to do when I retired. Um, and so that it's a great balance between the two. For those, 412 is a hidden gem inside of Ottawa. What we do is we do, as you'd mentioned, we do executive transports or for VVIP. So Prime Minister, Governor General, members of Parliament, the military. We also have another mandate to uh, do medical airlift, which is mm-hmm. the aircraft are available for that. So depends depends on what we're doing. So it's a fun job. It's interesting. It's a small unit, but she's fun. It does sound really cool when you told me that you guys are responsible for transporting some of these kind of like elite figures that we think of from a societal perspective. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, And in terms of being like a reservist in the Air Force, is that only something that's kind of available if you've been a full time member and now you're looking to kind of, you know, be involved, but maybe in a less full capacity or can people join straight into a reservist Air Force unit if you know? Yeah, no, it is very possible. So I I went that route because the position, the reserve position that came up specifically asked for a master warrant officer, mm. a, a substantive master warrant officer, which I am. So, but if people are interested in a, a position with the uh, reserves, most units have reserve positions for a lot of the trades. Predominantly, actually, it depends on where you are. I know mm. a lot of uh, units have many reservists. So for example, 408 Squadron is attack the helicopter squadron in Edmonton. We have quite a few reservists, enough that they actually have a reservist cell there. And so you can join right off the street and get fully qualified (laughs) and and go and and do your thing. And, and then, and then there's also support trades and different stuff. So we have quite a few of that. Uh, The the interesting thing about the air reserves versus the army and the Navy, and in no way am I, I I will really want to preface this up front. In no way am I saying 
the <laughs> army and the navy are bad i'm just saying this is how the air force does it and it and i i agree with the way i can't stress that enough <laughs> so the way the army and the navy do their reserves is they will have they have a, a reserve budget and the reserve units so let's use infantry re reserves for example they will go and run their own basic trainings. They will go and run their own uh, leadership courses and stuff like that. So, and it, that's based by region by region. And that's great because their throughput is significantly higher to get more people in. But some mm -hmm. of the disadvantages can be that that standard can vary from region to region and unit to unit. So it, it causes a bit of a disconnect. And then, so when people try to get into the regular force, if that's something they choose to do, mm -hmm. uh, your qualifications and your ranks may not necessarily carry over. And more often than not, especially from an NCM perspective, uh, more often than not, there is a bit of a drop in, in seniority just mm -hmm. because of the different things that take into play. Now, the I could get into class A, class B, full-time, part-time, that different type of thing, but that's just, I'm specifically speaking to the training. What the Air Force does is they have taken their reserve money and they have given it to the regular force training units. And they said, okay, we are going to give you this money, but when you run uh, an ACS, regular force ACS trades course, uh, you have, you must put, and I'll just throw, I don't know what the actual number is. You must put two reservists on that course. Mm. So then those people, eventually they get sent to the board and they go full time and they do that ACS tech course as a reservist. They get paid full-time, the whole thing. They do the training with the regular force, with the regular force program. And then when they're done, they go back to their unit and they go do their thing. And that, that remains the same throughout their entire career. The advantage of that is, is when they go and get qualified, they are cons automatically considered qualified to the equivalent as a regular force member. So when someone wants to join the regular force, it's much easier to get in and they're able to retain their seniority and whatever rank level they may have achieved. The, the drawback to that is there's less spots available because it's very rarely a course full of reservists. So mm -hmm. pros and cons depends what someone's interested in doing. But I do like the idea that if someone is interested in doing a full time career, there are more opportunities there to do that quicker. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. I, I think that's something that you might only be able to learn from having a conversation like this with someone who's kind of more involved. So that that's great information to know. Um, because I, I did, I think I looked when I was joining the reserves, if there was like Air Force units and stuff around, but there weren't really. Um, but yeah, it probably varies on location as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, so for those listening, if you're interested in like Air Force, definitely don't be discouraged, like check it out, see what options are available. As always, do your due diligence and see what works for you. That is very cool that you can do a, basically a regular force course and still be a reservist. Um, another possibility for those, those who might be interested in that as well. And going back to kind of your, your current tasks that you do at your unit, can you just kind of talk about like what your main kind of role is in your position? Yeah, so you've touched on it a couple of times. My main thing uh, to do for is to be the advisor to the commanding officer for all things Canadian Armed Forces related. It, traditionally, uh, the, the SWO or the chief would be someone who deals pre predominantly with dress and deportment of the members, parades, awards. And I still do that. But now, uh, with the realities of the social climate and changes that's happened in the forces, the SWOs and the squadron chiefs, the RSMs or whatnot, were more advisors about policies, uh, not necessarily legal stuff because we're not lawyers, but we are definitely the, the supposed to be the experts on how to uh, enact things like promotion policies and mm -hmm. things like dress and deportment and, and, and being a 
an impartial ear for the commanding officer to bounce ideas back and forth. Uh, it used the term used to be called a command leadership team, but now it's just it's a it's a command leadership partnership. And the idea is that we're working together with each other, not the CEO talking at the chief and the chief talking at the CEO. We work with each mm -hmm. other to do what we have to do. Okay, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. That's pretty interesting too. Um, I guess one thing that I'm wondering as well is how the dynamic kind of changes between senior NCMs and officers when you get to higher levels. Oh, um, it, it, yeah, so you go, <laughs> I cut you off. Yeah, no, no, just because I remember like coming from like army reserves, we'd have like senior, more NCOs who kind of bridge the gap between like officers and then like the units. But I'm wondering like what that dynamic looks like when you go further up the chain. Oh, it, it, very, it significantly changes. Uh, privates, corporals, master corporals are in the Navy, the, their equivalent ranks. They are to predominantly working in the tactical level. So they are doing the job and maybe there's some leadership roles in there, but for the most part, they're being paid to do what, do the actual position there in the trade. Once you reach the rank of petty officer, second class or sergeant, warrant officer P1 or CPO one or two, things start to shift. We're now that we're looking at that tactical leadership and there's an understanding from the officer corps that these folks, us are more, more experienced and that experience mm -hmm. is carrying with it in theory, some not necessarily respect, but an understanding that we have some experience and that experience mm -hmm. is carrying some weight. Uh, when we get to the rank of master warrant officer or chief warrant officer or CPO one or two, the, that, that dynamic is very, very different. And, and that's because, uh, it's an, it's an understanding that, Hey, I've got lots more time in and my experiences are there. And more often than not, I'm, I'm dealing with young captains or young ish majors that have less time in the military than I do. So we're, we're trying to work with each other. And instead of maybe the officer talking at a corporal or a private or even a master corporal so to some extent the sergeants it's the conversation is more talking with someone and, mm -hmm. and and it has to be that way because my role is to help these senior officers be able to do what they do and so when we're able to have a conversation as as not 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 rank peers but peers in general then definitely there's it helps with that uh, team building hmm. yeah because i i found that um like leadership is not only for officers <laughs> as well. And I know that you're very much in the leadership space. And I guess I'm just kind of curious too, what does leadership look like um, if you choose to go NCM versus if you choose to go officer, you kind of alluded to it a bit, mm -hmm. but I think there there is like a real difference between NCM and officers, but I think that people shouldn't be necessarily discouraged from going NCM if they want to do leadership maybe down the line and maybe it just looks different if you want to yeah. comment on that. Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I'll start by saying is all officers, when they join the military, are trained that BMOQ is about teaching them how to start their leadership journey right from day one. You are being judged on everything you're doing as a leader, a, a small group of three to five people, but as a leader. NCOs, NCMs, when we join the military, that is not our job. Our job is to learn how to do what we're told and, and work. And that's okay because someone has to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Eventually, in senior NCOs, for sorry, for NCMs, we will achieve, especially at the master corporal and uh, master sailor rank level, we are now formal leaders. It's the first level, emerging leaders, entrance level leaders, whatever the term you want to use. That's different, but that's after we've gained experience doing what we're, we're doing. In the mm -hmm. officer corps, all officers are leaders, and you are afforded that based off the commission 
that is mm-hmm. granted to you by the governor general on behalf of the the king. Sorry, I almost said the queen there. <laughs> uh, on behalf of the king, and and so there is a different set of responsibilities for that. Now, of course, like everything, that's a very generic and general statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, some pilot, some officer trades are they start working right away too. Pilots are a great example. You're an officer, but you're in doing your job. It's a flying role. Uh, so it depends on what you're doing and where. Okay. Awesome. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's kind of cool to explore those roles. And also when I was in, obviously I've had different experience than you, but when I was in the Army Reserves in Toronto, I found it very interesting how a lot of the NCMs, like some of them had like PhDs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like that dynamic has changed a little bit, I imagine, um, in terms of, you know, the stereotypes of what everyone I'm sure knows but I think that there are a lot of like academically smart people as well who are just choosing to be NCM sometimes because they want to just do the thing instead of necessarily be responsible for people and have that leadership side oh yeah I mean gone are the days when when NCMs just had no education that was a very very much the case as you've mentioned there are members with PhDs and stuff like that Mm -hmm. uh when I, I, I don't know for sure if it's still the date, the case today, but it used to be you only needed grade 10 to get into the Canadian forces as an NCM. I think that still exists, but the reality of it is because of the competition base, if you don't have mm-hmm. high school, it's much more difficult to get in. Not, not impossible, but it's much more mm-hmm. difficult, even in the recruiting shortage that the forces are experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was almost unheard of to have an NCM with a degree. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very rare. But it doesn't make and... us any less smart. No, <laughs> yeah. intelligent. Yes, good to note that. Um, and do you have any advice like for young recruits who might be coming in? I know a lot of my audience, they're either like aspiring or maybe they like just joined and they're at the beginning of the journey as a member of the CAF, but also potentially a young leader coming yeah. into the military. Yeah, I, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to say something about that. My first thought would be to remember that you're at the beginning of your career and things are going to be tough things are going to be confusing there will be many things you don't understand dot mm-hmm. dot dot that's okay you, mm-hmm. and as the new leader you are going to make mistakes you're going to do things that will make yourself look dumb you're going to make things that are going to affect the people that you are responsible for you're going to make mistakes and that's okay you're going to do things that will infuriate your warrant officer you're going to be a private that screws something up and makes a significantly large mistake it's going to affect many people the -hmm. point of all this is mistakes will happen and that's okay it's what you do with the mistakes do you choose to learn from them do you choose to hide from them do you choose to stand up it's up to you my advice is embrace the errors learn from them and move forward and and figure it out because eventually you won't be new you'll blink you'll be 48 talking to kyra That's awesome. And outside of the military, you are an equally impressive human being. Let that be known. I know you completed a master's of arts in leadership without an undergrad, as you said, based on more of like your actual experience and merit. And you started multiple businesses. You've been recertified as a pilot. You have the Trench Leadership Podcast, and now you're training for an Ironman. Like, wow, like very impressive person that we have here today. I was just wondering if you want to talk a bit about your non-military endeavors um any of those points i touched on 
Yeah. So I, I will say I do have a couple of businesses, but it, it's almost a stretch to call them businesses. One is an aircraft <laughs> upholstery thing. I, I've done a few little, few different aircraft. Uh, I create, I, I love working with my hands. And the reality of it is, is NCMs, when we shift into that sergeant warrant officer role, we become administrators. So I wanted to work with my hands. So I, I make custom poker tables on occasion, rarely and not nowhere near enough. I should start to get to get one together. Uh, I love riding my motorcycle. I have a 1500 Kawasaki Vulcan Nomad. Uh, it's a beautiful bike. And, and I, yeah, I am a private, I, I've got my private pilot license recertification. So I, I try and go up to do that as often as I can, but it's not cheap. Um, <laughs> and I am training for the Iron Warrior in, uh, in Petawawa right now. So we'll see how that goes. That's a challenge for me. Uh, I've never done anything to that extent. Uh, but for myself, I'm just one of those types of people where I, I get an idea in my head and the, the seed sits there for a while. And then I, when I feel like I'm ready to jump on it, I pounce. It, mm -hmm. it helps that I like, I just mentioned I'm 48. So I've got some experience and I've had some, some time to, to work on all these different things. I do love it. And yeah, we could talk about trench leadership in a second. I'd love that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time that we kind of talked and touched base, I was just like wow this guy is awesome <laughs> like the military that. career that you've had the military career that you've had all the things that you've done the way that you've kind of like transitioned into the civilian world and also made an impact there and now you've made yourself a platform with the trench trench leadership podcast and i'd love if you could like tell us a bit about that and what you're trying to do over there yeah for sure well i'll start by saying i don't know that i'm awesome i do appreciate that i the way i look at it is, uh, you know, having been, being in the middle age right now, I've had the time, the life ex lifetime to go and, and work on these different things and pick away at them one at a time. Uh, I'd, I'd even say, if you remember just a moment earlier, I talked about eventually everyone had to start somewhere. I had to start at basic training, having the, the PSP style. It wasn't PSP. We used to have in the military, uh, actual military physical instructors called Perry staff. Mm -hmm. And I remember on basic training, this, uh, the instructor, she, yelled at me on numerous occasions because I wasn't running as fast as she would have preferred. And then now you blink and I'm a master warrant officer and, and here I am. So there, there, and there's a whole a mountain of stuff in between. So we all get there at that point. Anyways, uh, I rambled. I'm going to come back to talking about trench leadership. So yes, I, I did start this podcast called trench leadership, a podcast from the front. It's a couple of years old. Now I just released episode 75 last week. And the whole idea of the podcast is to talk about, talk to emerging leaders mm. uh, uh, with some advice, some inspiration and some practical tools as they, I like the tagline is as they lead from the front. Uh, mm. The name of the podcast is a bit of a throw, an homage to my, my military experiences, but also to understanding that when I was going through my master's degree, a couple of things happened. I kept thinking when I was learning about all these new ways of, of looking at leadership, mm. I kept thinking, gee, I sure wish I'd heard about systems thinking when I was a new master corporal, or I wish I'd heard about mm -hmm. this policy or, or this, this theory back then. I'm not suggesting graduate level training for sure, but at least an understanding of that those things existed. I will say mm -hmm. that the Canadian force armed forces, uh, professional military leadership training is excellent at training people in the rank level and the next one above, but it, it has a tendency to focus on that, which is great. I get why they're doing that, but mm -hmm. in doing so it, it, there's some things just have to fall off the table and it was limiting in seeing a broader perspective, still mm -hmm. a fantastic program. So anyways, 
I'm going through this program as I'm doing my master warrant officer military course. I'm doing that and thinking, I wish I'd heard about these things earlier and whatnot. And that, that theme kept coming back to me through the two years of the master's degree. And then coming near the end of the program, I'm like, okay, well, great. I'm coming to the end of this. What am I going to do with this two years of knowledge I've stuffed into my being? And I had mm-hmm. no idea. And I also had to do my thesis paper and do the project. So I thought, well, maybe I can, what I can create a podcast. And I didn't really have an idea yet. And then as I was getting ready to do the three-part series talking about uh, NCM education and how to invest in the future, uh, the idea came to me and said, oh, I should have a podcast talking about emerging mm-hmm. leaders because in my listening of leadership podcasts, I hadn't heard too many being spoken to about that. It was predominantly CEOs or C-suiters or very famous yeah. people, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But anyways, that's that's pretty much how the podcast came about. And now I pretty much every episode, I have a minute, at least one guest more often than not. And then I always have down the road interspersed, I have group facilitations and all kinds of amazing things. And I've just loved every moment of it. It's been a lot of work, um, but I I love getting to meet new people and learning about new leadership theories and practices. It's been a lot of fun. And I can definitely endorse this podcast. If you are still listening right now to this podcast at this production level, you absolutely love his podcast and his production level. It's awesome. There's music. There's a lot of really, really good content in there. And I would definitely recommend like checking that out. Um, Your episode length is approximately like how much, how long I should say. So if I do a narrative where I'm just the one talking, those tend to be anywhere between 15 to 17 minutes. And if it's a one-on-one guest, those vary between 40 to 50 minutes. And the group ones tend to be either an hour or more often than not, I will bust those up into a two-parter because the content is so extensive. So perfect for running on the treadmill, going on walks, cleaning your house, all those types of things that podcasts allow you to do with just some earbuds. So I definitely, I would definitely recommend that podcast. I was listening to it this morning, getting some gems and um, honestly, just a lot of knowledge. Thank you so much for being here, sharing all of your military knowledge and all of your leadership gems and introducing us to some different resources that we can check out. And I really enjoyed our conversation today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope the stories weren't too lengthy and and I hope I kept us on topic. And <laughs> thanks so much. This has been a real treat. I've really enjoyed myself. And last thing, where do people find you if they want to connect with you? Like what are your handles? Oh yeah. So I'm on, uh, I am on LinkedIn and Facebook. You can find Simon Cardinal, but I would also recommend going to the trench leadership. Uh, ideally the, the LinkedIn account for that, because that's where I do most of the my trench leadership stuff. I also have a trench leadership Instagram, which is trench leadership one. And, uh, but if you want to send me a direct email, that's totally okay. I have a trench leadership one for that. And it's Simon K at trenchleadership.ca. Amazing. Okay. Thank you so much. I think we're good to wrap up here and to all of our listeners. I hope you got a lot of value from today and make sure that you rent or you reach out to master one officer Cardinal and have a great day, everyone. Thank you for being here.